Good morning. On the sixth day, God created all of the land animals, animals that live on the land. But before he created man, or after actually, after he created man and woman, he said it was very good. Before that, he said it was good. But then man was created, as we saw in chapter 1, and then God said it was very good. In chapter 2, we're looking at the account of Adam, and he's going back over some of the creation, that is specifically the sixth day, but from his perspective, the creation of man and woman. And some of that was handed to him by God, but most of it he actually experienced firsthand. But it's interesting to me that before God said it was very good, there were some things that were not good. And in particular, there's only one moment when God says in the creation week, it's not good. And it wasn't good for man to be alone. So ladies, I would say that you should look at the creation week in this way, and specifically to the ladies in our fellowship, that it was good before woman was created, but not very good. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We understand the truth of your word. We understand that your word teaches us what's right and what's wrong, but it also gives us an understanding of who we are and why we were made. Why were we created? Why are we here? What's the purpose? What have you called us to do as men and women in this world? Lord God, we pray that this morning as we look at, first of all, the creation of woman, but also the establishing of marriage, that we would understand your perfect plan for our lives. While we're here on this earth in anticipation of your return, may we live according to your plan, according to your word, and in obedience to your commands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been taking our time as we've gone through Genesis 1 and 2. We're certainly not rushing. There's quite a bit for us to look at and discuss. But in chapter 2, verse 18, we learn that it wasn't good for the man to be alone. In fact, let's just look at verse 18. The Lord God, as we discussed last week, Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God, said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, in that statement, we learn that God wasn't finished creating mankind at this point on the sixth day. Clearly, this is still the sixth day. Some are confused because we went through the entire of creation in chapter 1 and got to the seventh day, and then it seems as if we're going back to discuss what happened, and that's because we are. But remember, the generations of the heavens and the earth recorded first. That was the first section or tablet that was incorporated by Moses. And now we get to the second section, which is the generations of Adam. It's Adam's account of not only creation, but the fall of man, the descendants of Adam. We'll see as we go over the next couple of months through the scriptures. But it also brings us to right up until about chapter 5, verse 1, first half of verse 1, when we get into the generations of Noah. So this is quite a large section to, to, to delve into, and we will. But today we only want to recognize that God wasn't finished creating mankind at this point, again, on the sixth day. 
I've mentioned it already. This is the very first time in the creation week that God saw something that wasn't right or wasn't good. Now, clearly, on the first day, when, when, the, when God created the heavens and the earth, it, it wasn't finished. It took six days of creation and then a seventh of rest for creation to be completed. But along the way, God saw things that needed to be created. He never said it wasn't good, though. In fact, every day, it was good. When he created the heavens and the earth and then said, let there be light, that was the first day. And he said it was good. He saw that the vegetation of the land and the seas was good on the third day. He saw that the land-producing vegetation was good on the third day. He saw that the sun, moon, and stars were good on the fourth day. And he saw that the birds and the marine life were good on the fifth day, and the animal life was good on the sixth day, and said so. All of that we know to be true. God said it was good. But God recognized something. The man was incomplete. Man, that is, the male, was incomplete without a suitable mate to help him. Man still needed a helper suitable or like him in order to fulfill all of God's purposes. See, God had created all of the animals, male and female. They were commanded to reproduce and increase their numbers. He had one last act of creation to perform that the universe may be called very good. And he determined to design the perfect companion for the man. And that's what we see here. Look at verses 19 through 20 in chapter 2 of Genesis. We read there, Now the Lord God, again, Jehovah Elohim, the name Jehovah, the personal God, the relationship we have with God, Jehovah, who is and who was and who is to come. And Elohim, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God. Interesting syntax here, a language, because you're saying the personal God who is God in three persons. It seems illogical, yet it's true because God is so much greater than our understanding. Amen? Elohim, it means it's a plural word. That's why the pronouns us and our are often used when it's used with Elohim. Let us make God, a man in our image, God says. Uh, and, and, and so you see that a number of times. But the words, they, they point to God and yet they really describe God's nature as well. And so the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air... And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now what is God doing? We're seeing a somewhat prolonged creative process that is different and distinct from how he created all other life. Plant life, marine life, animal life. All of that is just sort of summarized, but for one thing, that's not what Adam is concerned with. We we don't have any more detail about how that creative process took place. We only know the end result. But here we are given some detail because Adam was there. Adam understood what was happening. He was cognizant of all that God was doing and records it for us. And in the process, we learn something. We learn that God had a plan 
that included gender. Now, today we are very confused in our culture, although I don't think any of us are. Actually, rational thinking, logical thinking, truly scientific minds understand there are two genders. But today we're using pronouns like all genders and inventing genders and trying to validate and affirm people's feelings on the basis of, how how can I say this, fantasies, confusion, which is not the only area in our society that we see this happening. Listen, there's truth, amen? There's biblical truth. There's biblical truth. Like marriage is a biblical truth. Then there's scientific truth. Gender is both a biblical and scientific truth. There's simply no other way to put it. It's a fact. And yet people today feel over fact. You know, I'm oftentimes very careful to make sure that I qualify when I'm sharing how I feel. I will often say, this is how I feel. This isn't a fact. Just how I feel. And I found that many times my feelings are not factual. Have you ever experienced that? You feel a certain way. Well, I feel that that person is angry with me, and yet, is that really factual? I feel as if God doesn't love me. Is that factual? Oh, I feel that I'm not the way that God intended me to be. You feel that way. I validate your feelings. See, that's the important thing to remember when you're dealing with people who are confused about gender or sexuality. You have to acknowledge that's how they feel. Don't don't tell them they don't feel that way. They feel that way. It's legitimate. But it's not factual. If you're with me, say amen. Why is that important? Because we want to be compassionate with feeling, compassionate with feeling. And when people share how they feel and it's in conflict with the truth, if you attack them for their feelings, you're certainly not going to help them to see the truth. But we want to love them into the kingdom of God. We want to help them to see the truth and and understand what is a fact. But you have to acknowledge their feel. Here's the problem. Some Christians feel that if you acknowledge how they feel, you're endorsing how they feel. I'm sympathetic to people's feelings, the way they feel, how they feel about themselves. But apart from gender, so many people feel differently about themselves than we might feel. Or there are many people that, you know, what they feel about themselves isn't true If you attack them for how they feel, you're not going to help them. So here's where I like to draw the line and really just sort of divide between uh, telling the truth and love. If you love somebody, you have to listen and acknowledge how they feel. And the way they feel may be incorrect, it may not be true, but, but it is true that they feel that way. We have to present the facts And so this morning, I really want to share that with you. I want you to understand there are two genders. It doesn't mean, though, that if you feel you're you're, you're not the, the gender that you were biologically created to be, that feeling is valid. It's just that it's not true. And there are many areas of life as a pastor that I have to address from God's word where people feel a certain way. I feel that this is right. I feel that this is okay. I don't feel that this is a sin. And from God's word, we, as Christians, have to say, I acknowledge that you feel that way, but here's the truth. Here's the fact. I think if we approached these discussions in, that, in this way, we would probably still be criticized by some, but there may be many who would be willing to at least listen. And I hope 
that that is the way we approach these topics. So God revealed to Adam his design, his design of male and female genders within the animal kingdom. The first thing he shows him is, look, this is the design for for animal life. We haven't gotten to human life yet, but animal life, it's male and female genders. And by the way, that's something you have to acknowledge as a fact. God had just recently created the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He had made the beasts of the field that same sixth day prior to what we're recording or what's being recorded here. And he had created the birds of the air on the previous day, the fifth day. God had the man name each creature as a sign of his authority over them. In almost every culture, knowing someone's name creates intimacy. In almost every culture, knowing someone's name, even spiritually knowing the name of God, it represents the fact that God has authority over you, that he knows your name. He knows our names. When we know his name, it's not that we have authority over God, but we recognize we have relationship because that name is known. It represents the intimacy, but also something else. In the case of Adam, he had dominion over the animals and over the earth. And by naming it, by naming the animals, by naming each animal, it was a sign of his authority as man over all creation. He named all three categories of animal life. We saw in our prior studies in chapter 1 that there were livestock, which were the domestic animals, the creatures that move along the ground, which were the small, non-domestic animals, and then the wild animals, which would have been the large, non-domestic animals. And so there is perhaps a sampling of the major categories of animals here presented to Adam, mostly so he'll understand the design, male and female. That's the point. It's not that every single animal needed to be presented to him. Maybe they were. But it's more important that he recognized his authority over them. He named all the birds, but none of the marine life. Did you notice that? People have looked at this and they said, well, there's so many animals in the animal kingdom. You know, a a large number of the animals and, and, and animal life is in the sea, and yet that's not mentioned here. It's not that he didn't have authority over the earth and the sea or the oceans. It's just that there's a point, there's a purpose to what God is doing. It's, it's larger than... God didn't need Adam to name every living creature. He needed Adam to understand two things. Male and female, and that he has authority over the earth. And that's the point, that's the purpose, that's what's happening here. Now, just statistically speaking, it would have been possible for him to name about 3,000 basic kinds of animals in about five hours at a reasonable pace. So how long this took, I don't know. How many animals he actually named, I don't know. But it would have been adequate to acquaint Adam with the the animals that God had created, but also clearly show that there were none that were like him. Have you noticed that? (coughs) We sometimes look at a person and say, wow, he's built like a bear. Or a bull. You know, we might liken someone to an animal, but if you look at that, animals are so different than we are. Uh, Sometimes we look at apes or primates, and they seem to have, even dogs sometimes seem to have human reactions and human features. But if you'll notice in the animal kingdom, they respond instinctually 
to a stimulus, to something. They, they respond, but we're the only life that cries or expresses emotion on this planet. I mean, I know that animals express something that looks like and seems to be emotion, but it's not. We're different. We're different than all other sentient life on the planet. It's important to notice that. And the first thing Adam comes to in, as God presents these living creatures to him, there's no one, there's nothing like me. The only one, one. And that's why it wasn't good that he should be alone. I'm the only one. Please understand this. You and I, we, men and women, are the only creation on this planet created in the image of God and in his likeness. So, this obviously shows that man did not evolve from any of these animals either. To say so would be to dispute the word of God. You can say that. I, I even believe, and, and, and please understand where I'm coming from, that you can love God and be saved and be wrong. By the way, anybody here right all the time? There are many Christians who believe you can mix evolution with creationism. I believe they're wrong. In my humble opinion, I don't think that you can look at the word of God and embrace that scientific theory as fact. But there are those that love God that try to or maybe have convinced themselves that you can. But here's what we do know. Fossils of men, true men. And by the way, this is amazing to me. When I was a kid, I had that chart in the Time Life books. We had a series of Time Life books. They were very, very, very popular in the 70s. And I had the whole series. You know, they had one on the oceans and the land. And they were fascinating, but they were not based in biblical truth. And so there was this one pull-out page where you went from Australopithecus to Cro-Magnon man. Maybe you've seen it. In fact, one time, uh, I guess it was Jonathan who was uh, showing me one of his books. And this was one of those, you know, books that talk about animals and things. And we're looking at it. He goes, this page is a lie. I'm guessing Raj had something to do with that. I said, oh, what page? And he pointed to something promoting evolution. But it was interesting. He was able to look at the book, see what was right, what was wrong. But this page is a lie. And I love that. Isn't that great? Our kids can, can know the truth. I mean, we, we take great pains in Sunday school to teach them the truth of creation. And a lot of the answers in Genesis material is used in our Sunday school's uh, classes just, just to make sure that they understand this. So those that do go to public school and are presented with this, either in college or at some point in their life, they're able to look at it and say, this is a lie. I know the truth. There's a strength to that. There's such a balance here. We want to protect our kids from lies, but at the same time, at some point, they're going to have to confront them. Or, or you can lock them in a monastery, but, you know, those are your choices. <laughs> They've got to be prepared to deal with the lies of this world. And so we know that man did not evolve from animals. Here's the thing, though. I remember hearing about Neanderthal man. Do you remember that? Those of us who are around my age, Neanderthal man, Cro-Magnon man. You know, you'd see these pictures, and they were very human-like and somewhat ape-like, and it was a rendering of what they supposed these transitory, alleged transitory primates looked like. They were based on fragments, they were based on fossils, and they would create this look. And then something strange happened that, I don't know if you noticed it, I noticed it, I'm starting to read articles, 
And all of a sudden, Neanderthal was no longer one of those transitory specimens or beings. All of a sudden now, everybody's a Neanderthal. I don't know if you picked up on it. Look it up. You'll find out that the definition of Neanderthal changed from when I was a kid to today. Now, Neanderthal genes, or DNA, is found in almost every single human being. There are just a few humans that don't have those genes. And, and you're thinking, well, what are you saying? What they're actually saying is that Neanderthals were just men all along. They were supposed to be the last step in the evolution before we became Cro-Magnon man, which is just a human being. So the last two stages of that map that Jonathan called a lie, it, it, it's just people. It, genetics being different perhaps between some people and other people. So what happened? What happened to that? Where did that come from? Well, because they had to acknowledge the truth that, oh yeah, guess what? You know, like Neanderthal man was a human being all along. So I hate to say this, and I hope this doesn't offend anybody, we're all Neanderthals. Or at least most of us, according to science. Okay, I'm just being a little silly. So there you go. So, th so that falls apart. But then you have the fossils of true apes, which have also been found. You know, apes, not men. And these so-called hominids, Australopithecus, Homo erectus, these different these different transitory evolving steps between Australopithecus, which was a monkey or an ape, and Cro-Magnon man or Neanderthal man, uh, all of this is really just false. It's not true. These are fossils, and these fossils are fragmentary and very controversial if you actually look into it. They can all be interpreted as one of two things, extinct apes or degenerated men. So, so much for that map or pull-out-in-time-life books. God effectively makes it clear to us that not only was man created as he is, but man was lacking something, something was missing, and it was a suitable mate. And so we read in verse 21, So the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. Now, that is a very unfortunate translation because, and I'll get to this in a little bit, it, it's just the only time in the, in the Bible where that word, selah, is used uh, and, and interpreted as rib. It actually means a part of the man's side. I mean, that's literally what it means, a part of the man's side. And that's why... It's been interpreted in our language as rib, because the rib is on the side. But the rib is just a bone. It just doesn't, I mean, it doesn't sound right because it isn't right. It's part of the man's side that we're talking about. So back to what we learned here. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs or something from the man's side and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from that part of Adam's side, he had taken out of the man. So the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. So there we have the creation of woman, really the pinnacle of God's creation. Men, can I hear an amen? amen? It's okay, you can say that in church. It's biblical. And when you think about it, though, think about this with me, gentlemen and ladies. Think about this for a minute. All of creation, all the beauty of creation, and the pinnacle of creation is woman. I totally agree. 
And the Bible says so. For so many wonderful reasons, not the least of which is the complete companionship between men and women, but women bring so much into this world that wouldn't be in this world if they weren't here. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about many of those things, but I just want you to think about this with me for a second. What did God create after he created women? Well, he established marriage, but that's it. As far as I can tell, biblically speaking, creation was completed when woman was created. Put that in perspective. I think it's an important perspective because in our world today, women are oftentimes minimized, pushed aside in many cultures, not respected or cared for or valued. That's not at all how God feels. We know that. So looking at the word today, God formed the perfect companion for the man from his own side. Again, Hebrew, Salah. And it is through this process that man is first alone and then has a companion. Woman comes into being. God anesthetized the man. Now, how he did that is not important. You don't have to be a doctor and an anesthesiologist to understand that God is capable of anesthetizing the man, which he does. And then he surgically removes something from his side. We don't know what it is exactly, but this deep sleep, by the way, some have said was unnecessary because this was a pain-free world. There, there was no death. There was no sin. And some have suggested that had God not put him into a sleep, there would have been no pain. I don't know if that's true, but I do know this that this entire scene paints the picture of Jesus Christ. What do I mean? Well, it's a picture of the future death of the second Adam, who is Christ. As someone asked me last week why we call him, I think it was you, Rich, right? Why we call Jesus the second Adam? Well, Paul refers to him in that way. The second Adam. But the second Adam, who is the second Adam? It's Jesus Christ. He came to save us from the sin that the first Adam brought into the world through his disobedience to God. Understand something. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was put into, if you will, a deep sleep. At least the deep sleep that Adam endures uh, points to that moment where Christ is dead. And then something through that death is created. In the case of Adam, it was the bride. In the case of Christ, it is the bride. The bride, the perfect companion to Jesus Christ, who is the head. We are the body. The church comes out of the wounded side that was pierced on the cross, from which blood and water flowed. This is a picture of Christ's death and the creation of his bride, the church. It's a beautiful picture. That's that's not the only thing that's happening here, but you have to see it. It's the picture of the death of Christ which would come. His sacrificial death would result in the formation of his bride, and Hebrews 5 tells us that. So, excuse me, Ephesians 5 tells us that. So so you, you have to see that this was a symbol of what would happen. And things would not have been good if the bride had not been created. 
God used whatever he took from man to make the woman. Now, a couple of things I want to point out. Guys, we were made from dirt. The dust of the ground. We know this from chapter 2, verse 7. The animals were as well in verse 19. That's how we were created. From the elements, the, the, the raw material of the universe, we were created from the same stuff that everything else was created from. But the woman was made from the side of the man. Oh, she's made of the same stuff, but it didn't come directly from the elements. It came through man. That's so important, again, for the picture of Christ and the, and the bride, the church, but also just so that we understand. By the way, this, this word for side is used 35 times in the Old Testament in Hebrew. It's never translated rib. It's always side. Now, what did this include? What, what came from the side? Well, I don't know exactly, but I know it included flesh and bone. It had to. It may even imply blood. For as we know, the life of the flesh is in the blood, according to Genesis and Leviticus. Some have said it could have been some type of a blood transfusion, which again would typify Christ's side, wounded side, on the cross. All of it points to Jesus Christ. Amen? We don't know. All Adam knows, he's asleep, and he knows that something came out of his side, and now he has the woman. That's, that's all he really knows. I don't know how much God explained to him, but he certainly doesn't convey to us anything else, just side. Now, how do I know it included flesh and bone? Because look at verse 23. Actually, picking it up in the latter part of verse 22, it says, He brought her to the man. Then the Lord God made a woman from the side, from his side. And he, and, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of the man. Now, that's, it kind of comes close to the original language there. It's not quite the same. In Hebrew, the word for man that's used here, not Adam. Adam is used when speaking about man. But man specifically speaks of himself in this way. He says, Ish, Ish. The man, Ish, named her Isha. Ish, Isha. And that's to designate that she came out of the man. And so the language is poetic, but it's also phonetic. It also, it also makes sense when you listen to it. Ish, isha. And, and he's telling us this. We're learning this here. But notice, the man recognized she was the precious gift of the perfect mate for him. He recognized she was made of his own flesh and bones. She came from him. Now, all other men have been born of woman. But the very first woman was made from man. Now this gets kind of, I mean, when you think it all the way through, right? Let's, let's say that again, because that's a lot to take in. All other men have been born of woman. Even Christ, the second Adam, was born of woman, at least as a man. But the very first woman was made from the man. And... If we understand that, and Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians, and actually I'll, I'll read some of what's said there. Paul comes back to this truth throughout his writings, but in 1 Corinthians verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 8, he says, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. 
That's, a, that's an important truth. And then if we go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, just a, one thought here. There we go. That's 1 Timothy. And that is chapter 2, verse 13 says, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. So that's sort of contrary to everything else since. It's always the other way around. And there's a lot to think about here. Just just think through it with me. Christ as a man, because he became man, came from woman. But Christ as God brought about the birth of his bride. So in, in that you see, and I don't want to get too like weird on this and esoteric, but understand something. We see the two natures of Jesus Christ, the human nature, because he was born of woman, but we also see the fact that we are born again in him. The divine nature of Jesus Christ. So both are true of Jesus, in a sense, right? Because he was born of woman, that makes him a man, the Savior, but also he created us and died for us and rose again for us and is coming again for us, amen? And so the second Adam is both in that sense. Something to think about, a little meditation for this week. I I think it'll just draw you closer to who Christ is. I don't want to make a whole doctrine out of it, but I do think it's important to consider. So this precious gift given to the man, now what? We've discussed that. Now what? Well, now we see God establish marriage. And shortly after man is created, woman is created, and shortly after woman is created, marriage is established. You could say created, but established is probably a better word. God then established marriage, and it's the foundation of human society. It really is. And part of the problem with our society today is the degrading and the undermining of the foundation of marriage. And because of that, we're suffering. Because we're not obeying God's word as it relates to his design for us as a society, society is crumbling and failing. And people are suffering. And that's what happens every single time we step outside of God's design. We call that sin. It means, the English word at least, means missing the mark. It comes from a game. You would try to shoot an arrow through a hoop, and if you miss, they'd call you a sinner. And so when they translated the Bible into English, they thought, well, this is the perfect word in English to describe what it means to sin. You tried, you aimed, but you missed. Ever happened? Not to me much in cornhole, though. (laughs) Anybody that knows me knows I, I take cornhole very seriously. Right, Kurt? He was good enough to get me, like, custom made cornhole boards, and so he understands that. And they, they're always put to good use every summer. But when you miss, you're a sinner. You might really try, but you don't hit every time. You know, you can sin just because you're a sinner. You, you try and you fail. Even if you get it in, it doesn't mean you're going to get it in the next time. It, it, it proves that you are imperfect. It proves your sin nature. And there are other times where you don't even try. Other times where you just throw the bag. You just, you're, you're, you're not even going to try. And that's transgression, but it's still sin. 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 And that's what happens when we defy God and his word. Now, marriage is one area 
Where if we were to, as a society, even as Christians, if we were to truly obey God, just in this one area, there's so many areas we fail in, but if if we could just obey God in this one area, it's one of the reasons why for many, many decades in this country, marriage was held with, with, with in such high regard that, and I don't know that this was right, but people who didn't honor marriage were ostracized many times from the church, which I don't necessarily agree with, but it shows how seriously... The church took marriage until very recently. Even society honored marriage. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. So it's not as if you're defying scripture, but when you ostracize people because they failed, it's no different than being judgmental like the Pharisees. So here again, we have this balance. We want to honor marriage, but people who fail in their marriage shouldn't be ostracized or persecuted, or shut outside the doors of the church. Now, that's what always seems to happen in church, in general, in the history of the church. They have a good principle, but they put it above people. What happened to Jesus with the law? The Pharisees put all the principles above people. And he came to turn it around and put people over the principles. Not that the principles aren't important, like we talked about recently. Was man made for the Sabbath or was the Sabbath made for man? Those are Jesus' words from Mark's gospel. So understand, there's balance in all of this, but, but I say that so anyone here who has experienced failure in their marriage or is no longer married or for whatever reason did not have a successful marriage experience should not feel differently or feel as if they are not welcomed and encouraged to be in the body of Christ. That's the very first thing. When I first became a Christian in the 80s, within the Christian church, it was still very much the case that if you were divorced or you had failed in your marriage or you had stepped outside of your marriage, that you were almost, I don't want to say beyond redemption, but you were definitely looked at as sort of like, yeah, yeah, that person is, you know, they failed. God forbid we do that with any sin. Can I say that? Can I say that? Now, today, we've gone the other way. Now, the church and much of society doesn't honor marriage at all. They're trying to redefine it. They keep, they keep thinking they have. They have not. The Bible, as far as I can tell, hasn't changed. So marriage has never been redefined. Amen? But there are people who lie about it and make up stories as to what marriage is. They even say they're married to people of the same sex. And, and, and they're not. Oh, pastor, that's offensive. No, it's just true. I'm not trying to be offensive. Look at the definition of marriage from the Bible, historically. And you'll see that, again, back to the issue of gender, marriage is just as clear. So that may be a biblical truth more than a quote-unquote scientific truth, but when you consider, consider the scientific truth of gender, this, the biblical truth of marriage makes sense. Amen? Now, I'm going to great pains today to be compassionate. Remember what I said How you feel, you may feel as if you failed. You may feel as if people don't accept you in your failure. But the fact is, you're loved by God and by us. Amen? Let's get to the facts here. And God forgives sin. He restores. How dare we point to any one sin and suggest, other than blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is to deny who Christ is, how dare we look to any sin and create a stigma on that person's life 
where God cannot redeem them and reconcile them and work through them and bless them. Can I hear an amen? All right, so we got that balance. I feel like now we're a little bit more balanced to talk about this here. God established marriage as the foundation of human society. Look at verse 24. For this reason, what reason? What the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman or isha because she was taken out of man, ish. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. You see what God did there? He separated and brought back together again. He took the woman from the man and yet brought the man back to the woman. So there could be relationship. And that's what we're being told here. Marriage was established so that a man and a woman could become one flesh. You know, young people in the church for a long time didn't understand why they desired that type of intimacy with the opposite sex. They would look at it and they would see it as something sinful or lustful or wrong. And yet that's exactly why God created marriage. Not for lust, but for intimacy. The one flesh experience, it requires that a man leave his own family to create a new family with his wife. And this requires that the man unite emotionally and physically, physically as well, with his wife. That they unite together. And what marriage does is it completes God's creation. It completes the creation It perpetuates the creative process through procreation. It is the final establishment on the earth after creation. Going back to chapter 1, verse 28, which parallels with Adam's account, it says God, in verse 28 of chapter 1, blessed them. By the way, I'm just going to back up a minute because... Verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All we learn there is God created them male and female. What Adam tells us is the process. But it's not a different process. It's just an elaboration or an explanation of what we already know. And then it says in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So they were blessed by God. What were they blessed by God with? Spiritual life, which animals don't have. The ability to reproduce, which animals do have. They were commanded to reproduce and increase their numbers. They were commanded by God to rule over all created life. That's the blessing of God in chapter 1, verse 28. But here we have to stop just a moment because of the society we live in and reiterate this truth. Marriage is defined by God as one man and one woman for life. Can I hear an amen? You know that is probably hate speech in many places of the world. I don't know that I could get away with that and not suffer the consequences in Canada. In the UK, it's becoming increasingly unpopular to say such things. Some people are being persecuted for just reading that verse. Think about that for a minute. Think about that. There are places on this planet where that is considered hate speech. Why? Think it all the way through. Why? Why would that be hate speech? It's just truth. But when truth becomes hate speech, it means that the liars are in control. Can I hear an amen? See, the liars are in control in some of these places. They're becoming in control of much of our society and culture as well. Well, how do you deal with a lie? 
You preach the truth. You preach the truth. You tell the truth. That's how you do it. But you do it in love. And I've already laid that out. You tell the truth in love. But tell the truth. Don't be so loving that you don't tell the truth. And don't be so truthful that you don't tell it in love. Tell the truth in love. It's the only truth you can really preach is in love. Now, this is confirmed by Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 5. Even Jesus himself confirms this truth in Matthew and Mark's Gospel. So to say that anything else is, 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 is true and that this is untrue is to defy God in his word in the book of Genesis, but also Paul and Jesus himself in the New Testament. So I'm going to stay with them if it's okay with you. I am not going to embrace any new definitions of marriage, and I am going to testify to the truth of biblical marriage. Amen. But I'm going to do it in a way that I understand. People feel differently. And I'm not saying it's okay, but they do. So I have to acknowledge they feel differently even though their facts don't line up. I've often said this. I'm not called to teach the Bible. I'm called to teach people the Bible. See, if you don't put people in between the teaching and God's word, you're missing the point. Amen? Did Christ come to save the world, or did he come to save the people in the world? Think about it. So, today's world is such, and sin has had its way with us as a society, that marriage is corrupted through adultery, divorce, polygamy, even homosexuality. It is. To deny that would not be truthful. But marriage was intended to be monogamous and permanent until death. This we know. Now, cultures of all times throughout history have acknowledged the superiority of monogamy. They have. This is even true of those societies that have not always practiced monogamy. Listen, such awareness of the superiority of monogamy is not the product of evolution. Some people have suggested that mankind was, you know, he sort of evolved into this idea of monogamy. Actually, it's quite the opposite. He was established monogamous, and over time, sin destroyed the concept of marriage, and now men and men, you know, mankind, men and women, uh, have lost the the, the approach to marriage that, that would have sanctity in it, the sanctity of marriage. By the way, just pointing out, most animals don't practice monogamy. So when we say someone is acting like an animal in this area of their life, that's what we mean. And there are many people that don't approach marriage in the way that we do. They feel, feel, feel differently. But the fact is, this is the definition of marriage in God's word. Okay, enough of that. Let's close this up by looking at verse 25. There's a lot to observe and contemplate here. And actually, uh, just one last comment. Just just to be clear here, I just want to make this clear because some people are confused about this. Uh, Notice, the man and the woman are supposed to be united and become one flesh. That means sexual intimacy. Can you say that in church? Just so we're clear. That's what that means. So, verse 25, and I'd like you to actually do a little homework this week. What we've read is pretty clear. We've explained it. But this verse is one of those verses you could write on your refrigerator 
and, and ponder all week and probably come back next week and not fully understand. In fact, I've seen this verse my whole life and I still don't completely understand it. The man, verse 25, and his wife, notice they're now married, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Why are we told that? They were naked and they felt no shame. It's a lot to think about. Why? Well, they felt no shame in their nakedness. Being naked didn't make them feel ashamed. Now, sadly today, if you were to go to, let's say, Mardi Gras in New Orleans, I have never been. I will not be going. Not now, probably not ever. Now, I say that and God will probably call me to go there for some reason. Like the time I said I would never go to Las Vegas and then I ended up going twice because I did a wedding there and it's another story. Didn't enjoy it much. Didn't hang out in the casinos either. But today you would think, why? I mean, people are, men and women feeling no shame in their nakedness. I mean, these, these are the days of Noah. That's an accurate description of today. So how is it different in innocence and, and corruption and, and people come to the same conclusion? Very different things. To be innocent and have no shame in your nakedness and to act shamefully while you're naked are two different things. Are you with me? Okay, there's a big difference. Don't, don't liken the two. They were innocent. They were without sin. They felt no need to cover themselves. In fact, they only became aware of their nakedness after they sinned. We'll see that in chapter 3. Shame. And this is a problem, too, because... Shame is associated with nakedness, and it, and, and it really shouldn't be in some ways, and yet there should be in other ways. Let's, let's break it down. Shame is the result of feeling a need to hide your fallen nature. You, you, you have a shame. You, don't want, you, don't want, you want to cover that shame. While shame is the result of sin, modesty is an act of consideration for others. Are you hearing me? They're not the same thing. Modesty and shame are not the same thing. Unfortunately, many times in the church, and many times just... In, in life, we associate the two things and we look at them in the same way. Shame is the result of sin. Modesty is the, an act of consideration for others. We should never, you hear me? Never, did you hear me? Never be ashamed of our bodies. No. But we do need to be modest and dressed modestly. So you need to break that down to understand they're not the same thing. There's being modest out of consideration for others. But there's this thing that's going on in our culture, the body shaming, they call it. Have you heard this? I'm sure you have. Where if someone doesn't look the way you think they should look, you shame them for being a little heavy or too skinny or too short or too tall or whatever it is. Their feet are big. You know, whatever. You, you shame them. Well, that's just sinful. I'm going to say it again. We should never be ashamed of how God made us. Do you realize that a lot of the gender confusion comes from this as well. People being ashamed of how they look and how they feel. So if you and I promote shame as it relates to body image, we're working for the wrong side. And we're not being considerate of others who may feel not so good about themselves. It breaks my heart to hear the children cut themselves 
and hurt themselves and hate themselves because of the way they look? We cannot contribute to this type of shaming. We should not be ashamed. Of all God's creatures, only mankind wears clothing. Have you figured that out? You ever, ever see a dog? Well, I've got to be careful here. In the winter sometimes, where's Vicky? In the winter sometimes, they come out better dressed than I am. But that's us dressing our pets. It's not the same thing. You don't walk through the woods and the deer, you know, it's a little cold and see the deer with a little fur coat. God has provided for them. Their coat changes around this time of year. They go from light to dark and you think, oh, that's interesting. That's, that's God's design. They don't need clothing. Of all God's creatures, only mankind wears clothing. Do you know that that's a badge of our sin nature? It's a way of announcing publicly, we're sinners. (laughs) And I'm so glad you all dressed today. (laughs) They say when you're in front of a group of people, if you're nervous, you should imagine them naked. No. I don't intend to ever do that. No. But I will tell you that every time we get dressed in the morning... It's a reminder of something. You and I, we are sinners. Think about that. We're sinners. Now, we wear our clothes for warmth because we live in a fallen environment. There's a practical purpose. But we wear them for modesty because we recognize the fallen nature of others as well as ourselves. It's a sermon that's preached to us every time we get dressed in the morning. And then something happens, and I've got to go back to chapter 1, verse 31 as we close. And I ask uh, Pastor Russ to come up, and whoever else is coming up with him. We read there in verse 31 that God saw all that he had made. Now, this would include the woman at this point, And it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And though we've studied about the seventh day, we're, we're looking at the sixth day here and how it applies to the creation of man and woman and the establishment of marriage. So God now saw that all that he had made, including mankind, was very good on the sixth day. Oh, that it had stayed that way, but it didn't because of what happens in our next studies and the reason why man ultimately wore clothes. There is a shame in sin, and there needs to continue to be a shame in sin. But in Christ, there is no shame. I'm going to say that again. That's one of those things we need to take home. In Christ, there is no shame. Oh, Pastor Tim, how could you say that? I've lived a life of sin. I live a shameful life, even as a Christian. The things I do, the things I say. Because he who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There is forgiveness, and there is no shame. What are you saying, Pastor Tim? You can do something shameful and not have to live in shame? That's exactly what I'm saying. It's the exact truth of what I'm saying. That though we have shame for our behavior, Christ has made a way where there was no way that we might be made clean. He can purify us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us. In our sins. And you can walk from this place today, clothed because you acknowledge you're a sinner, but not living in shame. Lord, Heavenly Father.
That's why we're here today. The number one reason not to learn so much from your word, but to apply your word to our hearts. We don't want to live in shame anymore. We may feel that way, but tell us the truth about ourselves and how we were created. We may feel ashamed of how we look and how we were made biologically, but show us the truth that you have made us exactly how you have called us to be. Whether we're tall or small, short, wide, whatever it is that can describe us, your love is greater than how we may perceive ourselves. No one can know the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of your love unless they come to know your son, Jesus Christ. So I pray right now for any heart that is feeling ashamed, anyone that feels badly about themselves, how they look, how they feel, what they're attracted to, and how they feel they, they are on the inside. I, I pray that each and every one of us would bring that feeling of shame to you and receive forgiveness and restoration that we would always live modest and meek lives, but that we would also understand the truth of how we were created, that we were created for a relationship with you. And just as Isha was taken out of Ish, just as woman was taken out of man, we know that we exist as your church, as your body, because you died on the cross for our sins. You rose again on the third day, and you're coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we will be judged righteous without shame because you bore upon yourself all of our shame. And we thank you for it. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.